Colossians chapter 3, and we will read together verses 5 through 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are copies, there should be copies in uh, the shelf below you, in the pew in front of you. Colossians is in the middle of our New Testaments. We're going to read together Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10 in just a moment, which will be the text I'll be preaching on this morning. Uh, But before I do, in light of some of the rearranging of this service, in light of the baptisms and the meal to follow, we didn't have our standard pastoral prayer, but we did want to give special focused attention in prayer to the conflict that is raging in Ukraine right now. And so what I would like to do is to lead us in prayer before this message uh, that the Lord would shower His grace on this troubling situation that is threatening in many ways, but He's of course in control. Let's go to Him in prayer now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, You have told us in the 46th Psalm that You are for Your people, their refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. And the resolve of the psalmist is that we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains fall into the midst of the sea. And there he expressed the confidence uh, that we need not be afraid, for you, God, are in the midst of your people. We recognize, Lord, that the kingdoms and nations of this world will rage. You are not threatened one bit. You are ever on your throne. You are sovereign and control over all events. Uh, The king's heart, the president's heart, the prime minister's heart, the emperor's heart, it's like water in your hands that you direct where it should go. So we still our hearts this morning and come before you as you are the sovereign God over all. Many of us have been troubled. We have been heartbroken. Perhaps some are even afraid as we've witnessed the scenes coming out of Ukraine In light of Russia's invasion of that country, we do intercede for them now as a nation. We do intercede for Russia. We do intercede for your people in both countries. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased in your mercy to bring an end to hostilities swiftly. We pray that there would be no more loss of life. We pray that no more children would die, no more women, no more men, no more soldiers that you would bring an end to the violence that is taking place now. It is not your, uh, it's not our expectation as a matter of justice that you do this. We plead as a matter of mercy and compassion that you would please bring an end to all that is evil in those places in the world. We do pray for your church in Russia and in Ukraine. May you stir your people to wonderful acts of devotion and love. May you stir them to great confidence in the things of God. May you fill them with faith and hope and love. And may you equip them to meet the needs of needy people, especially in Ukraine. We pray that you would prepare them to preach the gospel to them who need to hear it. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen your church. We have had the joy of being connected to Ukraine Baptist Theological Seminary. We're heartened to see our brothers and sisters there in Lviv Uh, creating structures and frameworks for good and for help uh, for those who need it most. Bless the efforts of our brothers and sisters in that place. Father, we pray that you would work in all of these events to show your hand to be mighty, to show your heart to be merciful, to show your kingdom to be powerful and to have no end. Please work in this situation in ways we could never have anticipated. Do above what we could know to ask or think. 
please bring salvation and reconciliation through this for all around the world who look on. Grip us with the uncertainties of life and with the realities of eternity. And turn our hearts to you, Lord, and to your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whom there is found salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully you are open now to Colossians chapter 3. Please follow along as I read as we continue in our series in Colossians verses 5 through 10. There the apostle writes in verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, malice, wrath, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator." Offer a man to arise in me, that the man I am may cease to be. This is a quote from the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson, his poem Maud, written in the mid-19th century. With this quote, he expresses what then would have been regarded as a universal longing of the human heart to be something better, to be something nobler, to be something holier to be something more than we yet have been. For the Christian, this does not remain an aspiration, but through salvation in Christ, it actually becomes an accomplished reality. In salvation, we are united to Christ, forgiven of our sins. We have our human heart changed and made new. We love God, we love holiness and righteousness, and we come to hate our sin. We become altogether new, and our old man is dead and crucified with Christ. There is within all those who are in Christ a new man that has been given life through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We are made truly new through our union with Jesus Christ. And yet, at the same time, the Bible teaches that in some sense the Christian still struggles with the old man. Passages like the one before us. I speak of Christians having to interact, as it were, with two selves, the old self and the new self. The Christian has always to put off the old self, that is, who we were and who in some sense is still with us, and must at all times put on the new self, that is, who we are in Christ. The old self is who we were, the new self is who we are, and yet, in some sense, the old self still hangs around, still harasses us, and still must be put off day by day. So if we were to appropriate Tennyson's words to Christian experience, we might say that in first coming to Christ, coming to Him in repentance, coming to Him in conversion and new birth, we could use the very same words as Tennyson. Oh, for a man to arise in me that the man I am may cease to be. That's a cry of repentance. I need to be made new. I want the man that I am, the woman that I am, to disappear, to be done away with. I want it to cease to be. But then as a Christian, in the Christian life, we might take the same words to describe our new situation, but altered slightly. We might say, oh, for a man to rise in me, that the man I was 
may cease to be. That the old man would have no dominion or reign or influence over me now that I am a Christian. As this new man has arisen in me, I must suppress the old man and put him off that he might cease to be. I'm no longer that old man. I'm no longer that old woman. But I still must fight him. I am now a new man. And yet I must daily become that man and put on that man as one who is in Christ. It's a profound and paradoxical reality, but it is key to understanding ourselves as those who have been united to Christ. And it is key to understanding what our responsibility is now as those who have been saved from our sins and have been united to the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul is dealing with precisely this issue in our passage. Through union with Christ, we have died to sin. We've died to earthly things. We've died to the old self. This is an objective, accomplished fact through our actual, real, true union with Jesus Christ. And yet, as Christians, in our experience now, as those who have been united to Christ, we must nonetheless actively put to death our sins. Paul says in verse 3, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And yet in verse 5, he still gives the imperative, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Become who you are. Live in the union you have with your Savior Jesus Christ. You have died, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. So I want us to consider this passage under two main headings this morning. Verses 5 through 10, I want us to see the imperative Point number one, the imperative. What is the main command here? And secondly, the motivations undergirding the imperative. Number one, the imperative. Number two, the motivations undergirding the imperative. Consider with me first the imperative. Okay, so I'm acting as though there's only one imperative. There are actually three imperatives. They're all conveying essentially the same thing. Three imperatives in these verses. Verse number one, or excuse me, number one, verse five, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? That's the first imperative. You, Christian, believing man, believing woman, believing boy, believing girl, put to death what is earthly in you. It's an imperative, a command. Uh, Second, in verse 8, we're given this imperative. We're to put all our sins away. Put them all away, Paul says, and then he lists a litany of sins. And then verse 3, excuse me, verse 9, the third imperative, Paul says, do not lie. So lying gets its own imperative there. So put to death what's earthly in you, put them all away, do not lie. We can summarize all three of these imperatives in terms of one basic imperative that Paul is seeking to establish and advance. The basic imperative of these verses is that believers are to put to death their sin. Put to death what's earthly in you. Put your sin away. Do not lie to one another. We're to put to death our sin. That's what's required of us. It's required of these Christians that they cease from sinning, that they mortify their sins, that they abandon these various vices that mark their old way of life, and that they, by faith-filled, spirit-empowered, moral exertion, put them all away. So beginning in verse 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why the word therefore? You've heard preachers say this, whenever you see the word therefore, you must ask yourself, what is the therefore? Therefore. Paul says, put to death, therefore, hinting to us something in the previous 
few verses has relevance for the command he's giving now. And of course, the therefore is there because Paul has just explained that we have been united to Christ as the Lord's people. We have actually, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we too have died. And we too have risen to things that are above. And he's saying, as these things are objectively true of you, as you have been united to Christ, as you have died, therefore now put to death what is earthly in you. Live out the new humanity in Christ. Live as Christ has redeemed you and saved you and changed you and reconciled you to be. This is akin to the arguments Paul makes in other places, such as Romans 6, where Paul says, we have died and we've risen with Christ, therefore we're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies anymore, because we've died to sin. Sin is no longer to have dominion over us as those who have been united to Christ. That's why the therefore is there. And he says, therefore, put to death. That's the verb. That's the imperative. The verb here is a very strong word in Greek. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. It could be translated to kill or even to slay or vanquish utterly. The verb conveys a sense of urgency about it. Put to death, destroy, vanquish, conquer, do it now. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This verb amounts to a call to Christians to take self-conscious, decisive, and terminal action against their sin. The emphasis by this verb is on the choices, decisions, and moral exertions of the Colossian Christians. They are to do this. They are to take action. They are self-consciously to adopt conduct and behaviors that put to death their sin. Christian, I hope you recognize the Bible repeatedly calls us as believers to exert ourselves in the fight against sin. Of course, we believe salvation is all of grace. Sanctification involves the work of God within us, but that does not preclude the frequent scriptural calls upon the Christian to take decisive action in the Christian life and to make conscious moral choices and to strenuously exert themselves in the fight against sin and the fight for holiness. So Paul says, you Christians put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? It is a call to self-conscious moral exertion. And Paul immediately defines the kinds of earthly things he has in mind. It's primarily sinful things. It's sinful desire. He lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are the things we as believers are to put to death, to slay utterly, to kill. The idea is these things, these sins... In this context, Paul is treating them as though they have a life of their own. They are alive. I'm reminded of the language in Genesis 4 that our brother Rex Blackburn cited last week in his uh, equip class. Uh, there, uh, the Lord says to Cain, sin's desire is to have you and to rule over you, but you must rule over it. It is that sin has a life to it. Sin is animated. Sin wants to rise up and do certain things within us. And Paul is acknowledging that these sins formally animated you. They defined you. They had a life of their own. They were given free reign to exercise dominion over you. And even now, Christian, they seek at all times to govern you. But as those who have died in Christ, the command is you must put them to death. You must master your sins. You must choke them out at the root. The imperative is plain. You, Christian, must put your sins to death. 
He doesn't say tolerate them. He doesn't say negotiate with them. He doesn't say, well, do your best to avoid them. The imperative is clear and final. Kill them. Cut off their life. Execute them fully, utterly, and finally. So, brother, sister, I simply remind you, the Bible is replete with such commands. Our attitude towards sin can be none other than all-out warfare. Holy violence. We are called repeatedly to kill sin, to put to death our sin, to mortify it, to choke it out, to cut it off, to put it away. The Christian can never make friends with sin or to treat sin in a casual fashion. The Christian policy towards sin is a zero-tolerance policy. It is a kill-or-be-killed mindset. It is a master-or-be-mastered mindset. Paul reflects the same degree of urgency in Romans 13 where he says this in verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't think, Christian, you can tolerate sin. You can wink at sin. You cannot kind of like control sin and manage it on the side. You can't compartmentalize sin. It must be killed or it will kill you. It must be mastered or it will master you. I'm not sure where I first heard this illustration, but it resonated with me. Uh, do people still watch when animals attack? Do you remember that show? It seemed to always be on on Saturday afternoons. And uh, I can remember as a kid watching that show, When Animals Attack. And I can remember seeing one uh, incident in particular. This would be, you know, basically people being attacked by animals in unsuspecting situations. They're leaning up to the crocodile to take the picture, and then the crocodile lunges at them like, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. <laughs> but, but there's this one video, and there's this, she's like a model, and she's doing this interpretive dance thing, and they thought for the video shoot they would get a lion. Okay, so full-blooded, massive, I don't know, 500-pound lion, I don't know much they weigh, and here's this lion, and the the lady's like leaning on it, and she's doing this dance around it or whatever, and you got the trainers and the photographers, they're kind of all in the, they don't want to be in the shoot, but they're kind of watching, you know, they had this train lion brought in, and uh, so she's kind of doing her thing, and she's dancing right in front of the lion, and the lion lunges at this lady and just like tears her up. It was a brutal scene. But, but, but afterwards, kind of interviewing the lady, she was fine, okay? And, um, and she's like, I don't know what happened. You know, I was just there dancing. And they interviewed the trainer, and he's like, I, I didn't see this coming. I mean, here's some meat waving in front of this lion, and, and it, it struck, right? And, but, but, but he said, you know, I, I, I raised this lion from when it was a little cub, and I nursed it, and I trained it. It used to even have it in bed with me, and I would tell it to lie down and go over here. It's always obeyed all my commands. I've never seen it act like this. Could it be that some of us treat our sins in that way? You think, brother, you think, sister, I can control this. I can command this. this. This sin's been with me my whole life, but hey, I can tell it to lie down. I can tell it to stand up. I can tell it to sit over there for a bit. It'll come to me when I beckon it. It'll go when I tell it to go. Is that your attitude towards your sin? Sin will ruin you, my friend. Sin can't be controlled like an apex predator. It cannot be domesticated. And that sin, you think, well, I've got a handle on it. I can just keep it right there, and I can control it. One day it will devour you and destroy you. Don't play with sin. 
Don't play with that sin that tried to master Cain and made him into a murderer of his brother. We must kill our sin, put it to death, put it away utterly and entirely. So we're to put to death what is earthly in us. Paul then provides the list of the kinds of sins we're to mortify. Most of the sins listed in verse 5 pertain to sexual sin, though they certainly extend further than sexual sin only. So let's just look at that list briefly. What sins are we to put to death? Which ones does Paul enumerate? First, he lists sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. Uh, Curtis Vaughn writes this, sexual immorality was a sin woefully rife in Paul's day, and for that reason was by him ruthlessly condemned. This word would include sexual lust, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, prostitution, bestiality, and sexual abuse, and the command is put these things to death. Do whatever it takes to choke out the sin of sexual immorality. He lists then impurity. The idea of moral uncleanness certainly can pertain to sexual uncleanness, but more broadly speaking, moral uncleanness. He then lists passion. The Greek word is pathos. Uh, Some of you I know do like classical education. You know in in rhetoric there's those three basic strands to make a good argument. You use logos, logic, rational argument, uh, ethos, that's I think ethics, moral virtue, things like that, and pathos is emotion, right? That's the word we have here, pathos. Now Paul I don't think is saying all expressions of emotion and affection and pathos are wrong. The word is a very general word that's used uh, neutrally in a number of different places in the New Testament, but here in this passage, it's decidedly negative. And in the context, I think what Paul is saying is we're to put to death pathos, that is to say, unbridled, unregulated emotion and passion that controls us and commands us and exercises dominion over us. We're not to have untethered emotion that overcomes our self-control and overcomes our ability to please God and to do what is right. We're to put to death that kind of passion and emotion. He lists then evil desire. That's all kinds of lusts and cravings that are sinful. And finally, covetousness, or perhaps more uh, specifically, greediness, uh, a sinful longing after some forbidden object, or a sinful longing after what God has not given you. And Paul equates this to idolatry, uh, wanting a forbidden object, a sinful object so bad your heart is so inclined toward it, he calls it a sin of idolatry, making an idol of that thing or that person or that relationship covetousness, greediness, which we are to kill. Well, if you look down at verse 8, before we leave this point, I want you to see also uh, the second way in which Paul essentially gives the same imperative. He uses slightly different language. He says, in these two, verse 7, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, but then verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Again, this is a command to put to death our sin, to put it away. That is the literal translation of the word, to put it away. It could also be translated to take off. It would be the language you would use if you were taking off a particular garment and putting on another garment, to disrobe, take off these sins. I wonder if you've ever seen a little child, maybe a two-year-old little child outdoors playing, and they're standing there in the red ant pile and the ants are like running up them, and the child just starts screaming, doesn't know what's going on, just knows their legs are on fire. And what do you do is the mom or dad or the grandma or the grandpa, you rush to the child's aid, and you start ripping off their clothes, right? 
take this off, right? Because there's ants in there and they're harming the child and all of that. That might be a fitting way to interpret the language here. We're to put off our sins. We're to take them off like a garment urgently. There's uncleanness on this garment. There's harm coming to me through this garment. I need to get it off as quickly as I can. And so again, Paul lists various sins that we must put off. These more reflect sins of attitude and speech. Paul says, first of all, put off anger. And then a very near synonym, wrath. Brother, sister, you wrestle with anger. You wrestle with wrath. You need to put it away. Put away your anger. Put away your wrath. Put away bitterness. Put away rage. Put away your anger, your wrath. Uh, Malice, that would be evil intent, seeking to devise wickedness and to carry it out in your mind. Uh, Slander, which could be understood to be slander against someone. It could also be translated blasphemy, uh, to blaspheme against God or God's creation. He lists then obscene talk. This is uh, dirty talk or filthy talk, speaking about holy things in an obscene way or a dirty way, speaking with lewd speech, with crass speech. And finally, he says, the third imperative, do not lie to one another. I don't know why that gets its own imperative. Perhaps it was a point of emphasis. But Paul says, we're going to speak the truth to each other. We don't lie to each other anymore. One of the virtues that is to mark the people of God is honesty, openness, speaking the truth to one another. Lying cannot be among us. It must be put out of the community of truth. And the imperative is, put these things away. Take them off like a garment. All right, that's the first point, Paul's basic imperative. We're to put to death our sins. We're to kill, therefore, what is earthly at us. We're to put all these things away, not to lie to each other because we put off the old man and put on the new man. Now consider with me, secondly, we've seen the imperative. Secondly, the motivations undergirding the imperative. The motivations undergirding the imperative. Paul is going to motivate us to heed what he has told us, and there are two main motivations in these verses. Number one, first motive, the coming wrath of God against sin. The coming wrath of God against sin. In verse six, after telling the Colossian Christians they are to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in them, lists these various sins, he says, verse six, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these sins, Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, greediness. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, it's important to note, Paul is supplying this motivation to Christians. He knows and assumes he is speaking to a Christian audience. And so, I think we could understand Paul's reasoning here in supplying this motivation in two ways. First of all, he wants these Christians to know if they give themselves over to practicing these things, sexual morality, etc., they will demonstrate that they never were truly united to Christ, they never truly died to what is earthly in them, they never turned from their sins, and that they themselves, as those who practice evil, will be the objects of divine wrath. And of course, this truth, whether it is exactly what Paul means, is surely true. The Bible does teach, regardless of what we would profess about what we believe about Jesus, 
If we don't live out a transformed life, but rather live in our sins and in sinful indulgence and give ourselves to the works of the flesh and practice evil, we will be the objects of God's wrath. Paul says this, in effect, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The wrath of God is coming against evildoers. Those who make a practice of sitting, who fail to repent and turn from these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But notice now in our passage, Colossians 3, he doesn't exactly say the wrath of God is coming against you, you Colossian Christians. He says with confidence earlier in the book, or in our passage actually, you used to walk in these things. He believes this about them. These things don't mark you now. These things mark your old life. This is how you used to walk. These things mark your life formerly. They don't mark you now. Moreover, Paul has assured them in the previous chapter that their record of debt has been canceled, that Christ nailed it to the cross, and that they have experienced the full forgiveness of their sins and are no longer the object of God's wrath. And yet, the coming wrath of God against sin is still supplied as a motivation for them to put off their sins. So what do we make of this? Is Paul saying, you know, you, you could be the object of God's wrath. It's possible. I tend to favor this second interpretation. This is the second way we can understand why Paul raises the issue of the wrath of God. And that is to provoke these Christians to put to death their sin simply by the association of these things with God's coming wrath. So, in effect, he's saying, the people who give themselves to these deeds, you Christians, you believers, the people who give themselves to these things and these behaviors will suffer the wrath of God. And will you abide these things? You see the effect. These things will invite the wrath of God. Are you going to play with these things? Evil doers are going to be consumed by divine judgment. And are you going to dabble with sexual immorality? Are you going to play with those very vices that will invite the divine wrath of God? I think that's the effect. I think that's where Paul's going with this. Against these sins that I'm telling you to put off, do it because the wrath of God is coming. So our attitude is to be, sexual sin will be the object of my Father's everlasting wrath. And will I do this thing? I'm going to look at pornography. I'm going to cheat on my spouse. The wrath of God is coming against these things. God is going to crush the greedy. And will I allow greed and covetousness to gain a foothold in my life? The pure in heart will see God, but the impure will be the objects of divine punishment. How I ought, as a Christian, as one united to Christ, dead to sin, how I ought to put to death every vestige of impurity, every vestige of these things that invite my Father's wrath. So I think this is to be our response, and it is to form part of the grounds of our motivation in killing our sin. Our God hates these things, and He has reserved His wrath for all those who practice such things. Therefore, I will not touch them. I will put them to death, and I will put them away. That is to be the Christian response. But even as I read this passage and I look out on this room of people, know some of your 
stories, I know some of you personally, I just want to linger on this line for a moment longer and address you who are not Christians. You haven't turned from your sin, you haven't embraced Jesus Christ, you haven't believed the gospel. I just want to warn you as soberly as I can that the wrath of God against sin is coming. The wrath of God against your sin is coming. It may appear, at least for now, as though God does not see. It may appear as though He doesn't know. But I assure you, my friend, God sees all. And in this text, we can hear the distant peals, the thunder of God's coming wrath. But I warn you, as soberly as I can, turn from your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace the salvation offered in Him because He offers full and free forgiveness. There's plenty of folks here, maybe 150 of us, who have come to Jesus Christ and believed upon Him. And you know what He's done in our case? He's canceled our record of debt. He's forgiven us all of our trespasses, and we no longer fear any condemnation. We read a statement like this, and we bless God that in Jesus Christ our sins are covered. We bless God that in Him we have been forgiven and had all our debts paid. But what about you? You need an advocate. You need a Savior. You need a shield in the face of the impending wrath of God that is to come. And I have the happy privilege of telling you there is provision for you. In Jesus Christ, you can be saved if you will repent and flee the wrath to come into the arms of Jesus Christ who will be a Savior to you. But we need to move on now to the second motivation, and this is by far the most prominent and the most powerful. It's at the center of Paul's argument in Colossians chapter 3. The first motivation Paul supplies for putting to death our sin is that the wrath of God is coming against our sin. Here's the second motivation, the second thing motivating us to put to death our sin. Paul speaks secondly of the believer's new identity in Christ. The believer's new identity in Christ which is to serve as a powerful motivator for us to put to death our sins. Look again at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And here it is. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Tennyson, offer a man to arise in me that the man I am may cease to be. That man has ceased to be. You've put off the old self. You've put him to death, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. What is he saying? Through union with Christ, the old man has died. And through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we rise with him to newness of life, and we have a new man to put on. We are truly given as Christians a new identity. This is such happy news uh, to all of us here who come into this place with all kinds of baggage and regrets and things that make us ashamed. You, Christian, are not your old self. That is not who you are. I don't care what you've done and how long you did it. That is not who you are if you are in Christ. 
Who you are is one who has died in Christ and risen with Christ to newness of life. You are a child of God living in union with the Son of God. No matter what your record is, that record has been decisively taken, your debt has been paid, your sins have been nailed to the cross, and you are now new in Christ. We have a new identity in Jesus. Objective union with Christ. And now he tells us, live out then this union. You are new, therefore put on the new man. That old man has died, therefore put him off. Paul's appeal to these Christians is that they bring their lives into conformity with what is already true about them. It's a powerful motivation. I think this came up in a previous message a few weeks ago. I don't remember the context. I used the illustration of a married couple. You have a man, he's a married man, and here has arisen an opportunity of temptation. Here's arisen an opportunity to commit adultery. And he is alone in his car, and he's contemplating committing this sin, pulling the ring on his finger. And he remembers, I am a married man. I'm a married man. I can't do this. I won't do this. I made a pledge to my wife. I'm a married man. Now, what's happening there to motivate and empower and strengthen this brother to say no to sin and to direct his affection toward his wife? It is the realization of who he is, his identity, that is exerting a moral influence over his conduct. It was very powerful. Uh, The Ukrainian president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. A few videos of him that went out this week, and um, expecting that he may die imminently. For all we know, he's dead now. We don't know. He's there in the capital in Kiev, I think. And he gave this one address. He said um, he was offered the opportunity to be airlifted out of Kiev. His family was given that opportunity. And he said, We're not leaving. My family's not leaving. We are Ukrainians. We are not traitors. What's he saying? He's drawing power from his identity. I'm a Ukrainian. I don't run. I'm not a traitor. I won't do it. I won't leave. That's something of the force of Paul's argument here. You have, Christian, you've put off the old self. That's not who you are. Don't live like that. Remember, new identity, right? We don't live this way. We're Christians. You have put on the new self. You have a new identity. You've been united to the spotless Lamb of God. You follow Jesus, your master, your teacher. Your identity is in Him. You've been united to Him. You are in Christ. Let that be your motivation to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to put on new life and to put on moral behaviors and conduct and patterns that are pleasing to God because of who you are. This is why I've said a couple of times, this is in essence the call for the Christian. Become, become who you are. Live out your identity. Live as the Christian that you are. This is a powerful, powerful motivation that Paul gives to these Christians. Well, Paul in verses 12 through 17 will elaborate on what it means to put on the new self, We're going to consider those verses over the next few weeks. 
I simply want to highlight briefly as we draw to a close what Paul says about the new life in verse 10, the new self. And we're going to return to these words next week, so I'm just going to briefly mention a couple things here. He says the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Being renewed. Being renewed. Speaks to an ongoing day-by-day process of moral renovation. How encouraging is it to know we're being renewed? Like we're, we're, we're moving toward progress here. The Lord is transforming us more and more after the image of His Creator. I had a friend when I was a kid. His mom was actually a professional painter, uh, painted all kinds of art that's featured in museums across the world. And she always had a painting up there. Is it an easel? Is that what it's called? Where you have the painting displayed? And there was, she would paint her paintings over months. So every time I'd come over, it was just a little bit further along. You know, now now the, the, the sun had color, but the sky was just white. And the next time I'd come over, there was some blue. And then the next time, there was more blue. And then the clouds appeared. And then the cattle on the hill a month later and all that kind of stuff. That's sort of like what's going on with us as Christians. We're being renewed day by day. Colors are filling in. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. We're like a poem that's being constructed. It's still missing a few lines, but it's coming into place. It's beginning to resolve itself. We're being renewed day by day. Being renewed in knowledge. I think this speaks to the believers growing in knowledge of God's person and God's will for life. We're being renewed in real knowledge of God and His will. He says we're being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. He's the image. We're being renewed, changed into that image. In a parallel passage in Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, Paul tells the Ephesians to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here in our text, Paul says of the new self we're to put on, it is being renewed in the knowledge, excuse me, in knowledge after the image of its creator. The idea is that God in Christ is embarking upon a new creation. And here we can't miss an allusion to the early chapters of Genesis. The image that was marred by the fall is being remade now as a new creation. The head of this new creation is Christ Himself who, as Paul has said in chapter 1, is the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul says. And therefore, to be renewed after the image of our Creator, it's nothing less than being renewed after the image of Christ Himself. What is God doing in you, Christian? He's making you more like Christ. He's making you and renewing you and molding you more into the image of your Savior. So we're putting on this new man. We're putting on Christ Himself. He is our paradigm. He is our aspiration. He is the image into which we are being molded and fashion. We'll return to these verses next week. I'd like to close with a word about baptism. You wonder, how does this relate to baptism? Baptism pictures the realities of this passage. Dying to sin, rising to newness of life. What is it we will hear in a moment as in sequence, Jennifer and Jamaica and Brandon and Kirsten come to share in a moment. What are we going to hear from them? 
we're going to hear the testimonies and the professions of faith of four individuals who have been united to the person of Jesus Christ. They have in Him died to their sins, and they have been raised to newness of life. It is true in their case that the old self has died and that the new self has been brought to life through Jesus. And what is it we will observe as they are immersed in the water and are brought out again? Each one will meet me in this baptismal in a few moments. We'll dip them under the water and we'll bring them out and do it all in the triune name. What does it symbolize? It symbolizes that in their case, they have died with Christ to their sins, buried with Him in baptism, raised with Him to newness of life. The old self is buried. The new self is brought to life. The last word is to say to Jennifer and Jamaica and to Brandon and to Kirsten. Uh, Some people in the world today are killed over what you are about to do. And you say, that's a rather macabre thought to introduce into a happy occasion like this. I say, not at all. It's in every way appropriate. Now, you likely will not be killed for being baptized. But if you were to be under threat of death for following Christ in baptism, I hope and trust that your attitude would be, I have already died, and my life is hid with Christ in God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to die in our place, you have done decisively what is required for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be united to him, and for us to walk in newness of life. Whatever it is now that you must supply to bring the new man to life, to bring new birth to our hearts, bring it. We pray that all of us would die to sin and live to righteousness. We pray that you would accomplish these realities in the hearts of each one here, and we pray for those of us who are in Christ, you would help us, motivate us by the power of this new identity to put to death what is earthly in us, and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What a blessed prospect to be reformed, refashioned into the image of our Savior. He is everything lovely to us. He is in every way beautiful. He's all that we want. Oh, Lord, make us more like Him. Cause us to hate the things that you hate, those things that invite your wrath. Cause us to love the things you love and to put on the new self in true righteousness and in true knowledge. And we pray for Jennifer and Jamaica and Brandon and Kirsten impress upon their hearts in a most special way these realities in their baptism, that they have died in Christ, that their life is hid with Christ in God, that they have already, in a sense, been raised with Him to newness of life, and there's coming a day when He appears that they too will appear with Him in glory. Seal these truths in a special way on their hearts and on the hearts of all of us here who observe. Bless us in this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.